This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Of course, in a late night moment of high drama, people can have moments of frustration. As you all know by now, on Friday evening, things got heated on the House floor when Republican Mike Rogers was physically restrained after he tried to lunch at Matt Gates during an altercation between Gates and Kevin McCarthy. But none of that ended up mattering in the end because McCarthy secured the votes needed to become the Speaker of the House. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about their actual agenda because that's more important, that's going to affect you, whereas all of this drama is nothing more than entertainment. But first, let's get to why that altercation became so heated. As the New York Times explains, just after 11 p.m. Friday night, Mr. McCarthy remained one vote short of what he needed to seal the deal. Representative-elect Eli Crane of Arizona and Representative Matt Rosendale of Montana, the two holdouts who seemed most likely to vote, both voted against him, leaving his fate in the hands of his lead tormentor, Representative Matt Gates of Florida. Mr. Gates initially did not vote when his name was called. Instead, he waited until the end of the roll call to vote present. Republicans cheered, but it was not enough. Mr. McCarthy needed a vote directly in his favor. Mr. Gates refused to budge, and Mr. McCarthy's allies moved to adjourn the House until Monday, crestfallen after a defeat they had not anticipated. But while the vote was being tallied, there appeared to be a breakthrough. Republicans quickly switched their votes to oppose the adjournment and proceeded to a 15-speaker vote which ended well after midnight. So that's why things got so heated. They were this close to securing the speakership and Matt Gates would not budge. So that's why we saw that altercation that quickly went viral when it was posted to Twitter. Now, we kind of see the end result is relatively boring and the end result of that altercation between Rogers and Matt Gates is even more boring because it's ending amicably unfortunately i was hoping that they would continue their beef but they're forgiving each other here's what matt gates said on fox news there was a tense moment late night friday night when congressman mike rogers expected to be the next chairman of house armed services confronted you you guys both serve on the armed services committee what was that all about and are you guys going to be able to work together on armed services well, mike rogers is going to be a terrific chairman of the armed services committee and we share a deep commitment to our national defense to our men and women in uniform and of course in a late night moment of high drama people can have moments of frustration but mike rogers and i have a six-year productive uh, working relationship we're going to work together wonderfully going forward and i don't think there should be any punishment or reprisal just because he had an animated moment he has my forgiveness and uh, certainly is someone who's done great things for our national defense and will continue to do those great things that was an uncharacteristically mature response from matt gates and it's genuinely shocking to see these republicans behave as grown-ups because typically 
they act like unhinged children. But there we saw him kind of put aside his differences with Mike Rogers and simply say, whatever, I forgive him. And it seems as if Mike Rogers is feeling the same exact way, saying he regrets this via Twitter, writing, Matt Gates and I have a long and productive working relationship that I am sure will continue. I regret that I briefly lost my temper on the House floor Friday evening and appreciate Matt's kind understanding. And like that, their beef was squashed. And I'm disappointed, admittedly, because whenever these Republicans are going at each other, that means they're not doing damage legislatively to the American people or attacking some marginalized community, which is what they love to do. Uh, but I've got to just point out real quick before we move on to the substance here. Mike Rogers is wearing the most conspicuous toupee I've ever seen in my entire life, and he needs to be more convincing if he wants to convince people that that's real hair. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. The question is, how did McCarthy ultimately seal the deal? And that is an important question because what he agreed to is going to affect all of us and potentially everyone around the world. So he agreed to more conditions on raising the debt ceiling in order to essentially get his opponents to stand down. As Roll Call explains, the deal between Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his conservative detractors lays a foundation for the massive spending cuts that some want, but also sets up a daunting challenge for GOP lawmakers who want to keep the government functioning after winning control of the House. By increasing the difficulty of reaching a bipartisan agreement on spending, it could raise the risk of a market-rattling battle over the debt limit and a partial government shutdown later this year. Now, last year, for months, Republicans Republicans were pretty open about the fact that they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. But now we're seeing a little bit of what I believe to be a ruse where they're saying, actually, we want to do some more altruistic cuts to the budget. Namely, we want to cut military spending. And to me, if they were to accomplish that, I would applaud them because that is an objectively good thing. Military spending is out of control in the United States. And I think that we should spend more money on saving lives rather than taking lives. But that's not necessarily what I think they're going to do. Although you have some Republicans like Jim Jordan saying that military spending cuts are actually on the table, although he was fairly vague about that in a Fox News interview. And we've heard some Republicans talk about their goal to balance the budget. This is something that Lauren Boebert said that she wants to do, which is why she opposed Kevin McCarthy. But if they actually really believed in balancing the budget, that does mean that military spending cuts would be on the table, right? Mm, wrong. Roll Call continues, military and national security related programs, which received more than half of this year's budget boost, or $76 billion, would take a 10% hit if cuts were applied proportionally. But top Republicans are already warning that'll never happen. And this was reiterated by Republican House Majority Whip Tom Emmer on Fox News. In the spending uh, approach, you've got the discretionary spending that involves both this out-of-control domestic spending since before the pandemic under Nancy Pelosi, uh, and you've got uh, defense spending. And the argument is this would affect defense spending, which I'm here to tell you guys, Republicans will not impact defense spending aside from efficiencies and waste. Uh, it's the domestic spending that we're going to go after. Yeah. So cuts to the military budget are highly, highly unlikely. And if we do see cuts, it's not going to be very substantial. I think that we need to cut the military budget by 75 percent. But even if we cut it in half, we'd still be the largest military spender globally. But if we're not going to cut the military budget, what's going to happen? What are they going to, to target if they actually want to balance the budget, if that is indeed their goal? 
Well, let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Should military spending cuts be on the table and put on the table by a Republican? Well, look, I, I agree with uh, Jim Jordan uh, that we are going to carve out uh, woke policies out of the military. We are going to look at the out-of-whack ratio of generals. I, I invite him to come on the Armed Services Committee and, and work with us on that. But, Stu, uh, and by the way, I'm all for a balanced budget. We've got to get spending under control, but we are not going to do it on the backs of our troops and our military, uh, when at the same time we're talking about China as the greatest threat. We're going to have a select committee on China. They're tripling their nuclear arsenal. Iran is racing towards a nuke. North Korea is about to launch an ICBM. Russia uh, is on the, on the march. And oh, by the way, we still have a global terrorist state now in Afghanistan, thanks to Joe Biden. So this is, I mean, we can work on prioritizing defense spending, but that's really nibbling around the margins. Okay. If we really want to talk about the debt and spending, it's the entitlements program that's 70% of our entire budget. That 1.7 trillion and defense within that is only 30%. So if we want to talk about big reforms, I look forward to hearing that uh, from those folks who are pushing towards the balanced budget. So there you have it. It's entitlements now notice how he was being purposefully vague there oh well you know when it comes to the military budget sure we can cut out some of these woke programs but you know ultimately it's going to come domestically from entitlements entitlements is code for austerity and if they get their way what they ultimately want cuts to Medicare and Social Security. But let me explain to you how disingenuous he was being there. So he was asked a question about our discretionary budget. Notice how he pivoted to entitlements, which usually includes a conversation about Social Security and Medicare. Now, to say that Social Security is an entitlement is a misnomer because that isn't an entitlement in the sense that it's a welfare program. That's something that we all paid into. So that's our money and the government is just holding it for us until we need it. So to say that that is an entitlement is wrong, if that is indeed what he's referring to, which I think obviously that is the case. But this is our discretionary budget here. Now, as you can see, military spending takes up almost half of our discretionary budget. So if you really want to balance the budget and make some cuts to our annual discretionary budget, the military is an obvious solution. But notice how he took the question about the discretionary budget and then pivoted to entitlement programs. So entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, and I say entitlement in quotes because those aren't entitlements, but those programs are not part of our discretionary budget. They're part of our mandatory spending. The average Fox News viewer, the average Republican probably doesn't know that. So in order to actually make that be the case where you make cuts to Social Security and Medicare and other programs that Republicans deem entitlements, you have to reform the programs in order to make these, quote, adjustments. Now, how do you reform the programs here? Well, you can do that in a plethora of ways, but one way was floated by Senator Ron Johnson, where you simply make Social Security and Medicare part of our discretionary budget so it can be adjusted, i.e. cut annually and at the whim of Republicans whenever they take control of the House of Representatives. So with these deceitful Republicans, you oftentimes have to read between the lines in order to force cuts to entitlement programs or programs that Republicans often deem as entitlement programs. You have to reform these programs, make them part of our discretionary budget. So that's what Republicans want to do. They want to either try to cut Social Security or Medicare as they've been broadcasting their intent to do over the course of the last year and then some or just 
push more austerity on us in a plethora of ways. But what's even more ominous than their agenda is the ways that they can get Democrats to acquiesce if Democrats don't hold strong, because now there's more conditions to raising the debt ceiling, which is a necessity in order to pass budgets. So what happens if they don't come to an agreement where we're in this hypothetical situation where Republicans say, in order to approve of this budget, we're going to mandate cuts to Social Security, a reform to this program to make it part of our discretionary budget, and Democrats choose not to, and they don't reach an agreement, and then the debt ceiling doesn't get raised. Well, catastrophe happens, full-blown catastrophe, because if the debt ceiling doesn't get raised, and the United States end up ends up defaulting on its debt, that will trigger a global recession. We're talking about worldwide misery. And they have that as their leverage, and they're already broadcasting their ability to basically push through what they want because they know that Democrats will never allow that to happen. So Democrats will be forced to acquiesce. Let's listen to Bob Good admit that on Fox News. Well, the real test for us, as you know, Neil, will be when the debt ceiling situation arises. When we reach the debt limit, we've got to have the willingness to go to the mat over that, to force cuts in spending, to put us on a fat path to fiscal responsibility. We've got to use the leverage that we will have at that time. Because, as you know, the omnibus bill was passed, unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago. We've lost all of our budgetary leverage through September. But we will regain that in the debt ceiling uh, battle when we have that soon. And the full faith and credit of the U.S. government is on the line for us to cut spending so we don't face a reckoning someday because of the rise in interest rates and the rapidly rise in our national debt. So we've got to show courage. That was on display, display here in this Congress, I would say, historically over the past week. We've got to continue to display that courage to fight to save the country from a fiscal standpoint. He's admitting it there. He says the full faith and credit of the United States is on the line for us to cut spending. In other words, if Democrats don't go along with what we want, either austerity, Social Security cuts, Medicare cuts, and whatever else, we're willing to default on our debt. Now, Democrats wouldn't do that. We would, though. They know that we're crazy enough to do that. So the full faith and credit of the United States government is on the line for us to cut spending. That's the leverage, ultimately, that they were looking for. So they're going to use that leverage to do very terrible things because they know that Democrats aren't going to want the United States government to default on its debt. I mean, nobody should want that, but these Republicans are crazy enough to make that happen. So that's what we have to be on the lookout for. I think that overall, this Congress is going to be boring, legislatively speaking, because they're not really going to be able to get through things that they want because the Senate will reject it or Biden could veto it. But when it comes to bills, that's where they have all of the leverage and that's where the true showdowns are going to be. So I would highly encourage you to pay attention to these budget showdowns because that's where it matters and that's where it's going to impact you directly. Now that Republicans finally have a Speaker of the House and the real work can begin, I obviously use the word work charitably here because we're talking about Republicans. Anyways, the Speaker fight is over and Marjorie Taylor Greene excitedly tweeted out a hype video letting everyone know what to expect, saying it's time to begin and they can't stop what's coming. Now, as you can see here, we can't actually watch the video 
because it was taken down with a message by Twitter saying this media has been disabled in response to a report by the copyright owner. Now, I'm not sure about you all, but I didn't get to see the video and I'm definitely feeling FOMO currently because the description that we get about the video from media, I leads me to believe that it would have been just wonderful. They explained the video, which Green uploaded to Twitter, features a portion of Dr. Dre's song, Still Dre, playing on loop in the background as slow-mo shots of Green exiting her office and walking around the halls of Congress are shown. The video ended with a black and white montage of Green's 11th hour phone call with former President Donald Trump, along with footage of McCarthy securing the speaker position on the 15th vote. So essentially, the video was cringe, autofellatio, with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg playing the background. Why would she choose that? Why wouldn't you choose Ted Nugent or some other Republican singer? Because do you really think that like hip hop are the vibes that would be appropriate for you? It's just bizarre. Either way, Dr. Dre kind of had the same response that we all would have had to Marjorie Green choosing one of his songs. And he went after her. He told TMZ, I don't license my music to politicians, especially someone as divisive and hateful as this one. And he later ended up taking legal action against her to get the video removed from Twitter. TMZ reports, turns out Dr. Dre's team took action, reaching out to Twitter to get the video taken down. As a result, Marjorie Taylor Greene tells us that she's been locked out of her Twitter account for using Dre's copyrighted work without permission. MTG also has some words of her own for Dr. Dre. In an exclusive statement to TMZ, she says, while I appreciate the creative chord progression, I would never play your words of violence against women and police officers and your glorification of the thug life and drugs. Mm hmm. I love how she's pretending that she's not mad. Oh, I'm not mad. I don't even like your music anyway. Of course you're mad and you're coping because now you were locked out of your Twitter account, something that in the past you've stated you care very much about. The best way for all of this to end would be for Marjorie Taylor Greene to release a rap diss track against Dr. Dre. I think that if we got that from all of this with Marjorie Taylor Greene rapping, kind of like Linda Paulson's rap, do you remember her? It would be so amazing, so good, albeit cringeworthy, that it might actually rip a hole <laughs> in the space-time continuum. But Dr. Dre's attorney, Howard King, sent a letter to Marjorie Taylor Greene, and in it, yes, it's a legal cease and desist. but. I want to read it to you because this isn't just some boring technical legal jargon letter. He dragged her in this letter. We'll read some of it here. Dear Miss Taylor Green, you are wrongfully exploiting this work through the various social media outlets to promote your divisive and hateful political agenda. Mr. Young, that's Dre, has not and will never grant you permission to broadcast or disseminate any of his music. One might expect that as a member of Congress, you would have a passing familiarity with the laws of our country. It's possible, though, that laws governing intellectual property are a little too arcane and insufficiently populist for you to really have spent much time on. We're writing because we think an actual lawmaker should be making laws, not breaking laws, especially those embodied in the Constitution by the Founding Fathers. The United States copy 
Copyright Act says a lot of things, but one of the things it says is that you can't use someone else's song for your political campaign promotions unless you get permission from the owner of the copyright in the song, a step you failed to take. Now, here's the best part here. So they're demanding that she cease and desist further unauthorized use of Dre's music, and they're requesting, quote, written confirmation that you have complied with these demands before January 11th. So in other words, not only are we blocking you from playing our music without our permission, but we're requesting that you send us a written letter confirming that you've stopped using our music and you understand what we're saying. Just brilliantly played by Dr. Dre's people. Now, listen, I'm going to be honest here. I'm a bit of a hypocrite on this particular issue. Usually, I think that these copyright laws are a bit too strict. I think that lots of times when people use these songs they're promoting this music right but when it comes to individuals like marjorie taylor green who wouldn't for a second hesitate to take legal action against one of her political opponents if she had the ability to do so i have no problem with this not going to shed a tear for marjorie taylor green i think that copyright laws in this country are indeed antiquated as dr dre's attorney kind of alluded to in that letter but when it comes to marjorie taylor green since her personal philosophy is F you, I don't really mind seeing her get a taste of her own medicine. And really, when it comes to these politicians like Donald Trump, who keep using these copyrighted songs without the permission of the copyrighted holders, I just don't understand what they're expecting because you're a polarizing politician. So do you honestly think that these artists would feel comfortable with you using their songs. I mean, was there just going back to her original video, which I regret not being able to see, was there not a more appropriate song for you of all people to, I don't know, to play? Uh, maybe the Banjo-Kazooie theme song. I love the Banjo-Kazooie theme song, but like something with a banjo and like, I don't know, just you get what I'm saying? Like the vibes of Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's a trash person. She's a terrible human being. So like something that represents her stupidity more sufficiently would have been better not still dre like that song it kind of it's a badass song nothing about marjorie taylor green screams badass or subversiveness or outsider she's an imbecile and she's trying to use her power as a politician to make the lives of ordinary working americans worse so that song is inappropriate for her she shouldn't be using that but now it's gonna cost her because she got locked out of her twitter account and this entire kerfuffle is hilarious and entertaining to me and i hope it continues i hope she continues to egg on dr dre i hope he continues to attack her i like this stuff you know american politics it doesn't necessarily produce good outcomes for americans but at least we can all laugh at the stupidity of it all right The battle over who's going to become the House Speaker is now over, but I think that what that whole kerfuffle demonstrated is that the Republican Party really is factionalized in more ways than many of us had previously thought. It's not just the far-right Freedom Caucus loons against the so-called moderate Republicans, and I put moderate in quotes because I don't think any Republican is a moderate, but either way, it's not just far-right versus right. It's now also anti-McCarthy versus pro-McCarthy Republicans, and some of these insults are absolutely going to leave some lasting bruises. And it's not just that they said mean things towards each other during the battle. They're still insulting each other. Now, that's not to say that 
some Republicans haven't tried to mend their relationships. For example, Matt Gates and Mike Rogers, the individual wearing the toupee who lunged at Matt Gates, who was physically restrained, they've kind of buried the hatchet. But others, I think it's going to take a lot more time for them to mend their relationships. So there's an interview by the Associated Press with Lauren Boebert and something that she said about Marjorie Taylor Greene prior to the speakership vote is so ruthless, so so mean but true that you can almost see the effect that those words had on Marjorie Taylor Greene. And let me give you an example of that. But first, let's get to what Lauren Boebert said about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She says, I have been asked to explain Marjorie Taylor Greene's beliefs on Jewish space lasers, on why she showed up to a white supremacist conference. I'm just not going to go there, Boebert said over the phone, as she rode in a car winding through the high canyons near her hometown of Silt before the speakership vote. She wants to say all these things and seem unhinged on Twitter. So be it. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this because what she's saying is unquestionably true, but it's ironic because, I mean, it's Lauren Boebert who's saying this. She also likes to behave in a very unhinged way, and I'll link to that interview down below. The whole premise of that interview, at least from her standpoint, is that even though she almost lost her election, she's not going to change her way. She's still going to be as firebrand as she previously was. So while she is calling Marjorie Taylor Greene unhinged, she too is unhinged. So she has no self-awareness whatsoever. But it's evident that Marjorie Taylor Greene, now that she has lost a lot of, I guess, clout, you can call it, with some of the members of the far right, including neo-Nazis like Nick Fuentes, who she was previously aligned with, as Bobo pointed out in that interview, now she's trying to do a little bit of correction and she's trying to portray herself as somebody who is more moderate so individuals like lauren Boebert don't call her unhinged and i think that marjorie taylor green somebody who's hyper aware of what people are saying about her saw what lauren Boebert said um and i don't know when the date of that interview with Boebert took place compared to the interview that we're going to see with marjorie taylor green but either way Marjorie Green is aware of what people are saying about her, and she's trying to make it seem as if she's more moderate, more reasonable now. And I say that because in this Fox News interview, she denounced QAnon publicly so. Let's listen. And well, just to deal with one bit of history, the Democrats stripped you of your committee assignments after you were right. elected. That was raw politics. Mm -hmm. But in fairness, didn't you also say around that period that you had been a follower of QAnon conspiracy theories and you had rethought this and you were no longer uh, influenced by the group? Well, like a lot of people today, I had easily gotten sucked into some things I'd seen on the internet, um, but that was dealt with quickly early on. I never campaigned on those things. That was not something I believed in. That's mm. not what I ran for Congress on. So those are so far in the past. All right. Um, mm. So she got sucked into an internet thing that was happening, except you can't just say that. You can't just say, oh, well, that's in the past. I got sucked into this conspiracy theory. That's behind me now. We're moving forward. Marjorie, you're a member of Congress. You fell for one of the dumbest conspiracy theories ever concocted. I might have more respect for you if you were a flat earther. So you can't just say, well, yeah, I fell for that and I moved on. We have to have a serious conversation about whether or not you're capable of having the, the amount of power that you have. Again, you are a sitting member of Congress. You have a vote that will affect millions of people around the country and the world, not just your constituents. So you can't just say, yeah, I'm dumb enough to have fallen for that, but I'm going to keep my position of power. But this is her trying to pretend as if she is moderating. So that way, insults like the one that Bobo threw at her don't stick as hard. But the problem is she 
is speaking out of both sides of her mouth because on one hand, while she's publicly disavowing QAnon, she's also saying things like this in the same interview. And listen carefully, because she's going to be asked whether or not she believes Joe Biden was legitimately elected. She's going to basically brush that aside and not even answer the question, but the host doesn't pick up on her disingenuous maneuver here. Let's watch. When things got heated, you said this about Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. He refused to object on January 6th. That's not what our base wanted. So a lot of the people who were backing Kevin McCarthy uh, also didn't vote to certify the Electoral College results for Joe Biden. Um, do you think that's an important thing to the base even today? Oh, it's very important. Well, what I was pointing out is the same people that conservatives were holding up in high esteem don't necessarily have those voting records while they're at the same time criticizing Kevin McCarthy, who does. Right. Kevin McCarthy did object on January 6th, and he's been a top target of the Democrats and the January so 6th committee. So do you believe that Joe Biden is a legitimately elected president? Of course Joe Biden's the president. That's always a silly question. Okay, I wasn't trying to be silly. I was trying to just clarify. Okay, he did not ask you who's the president now. That's the easiest quiz ever. He asked you, did Biden win the presidency legitimately and you didn't answer that question and if you uh, notice this is kind of the go-to answer for election deniers when you ask them was joe biden legitimately elected they'll say of course he's the president right but i'm not asking you whether or not you see that he's the president now we can all see that but do you believe the election was stolen so these hosts these journalists who ask these questions they need to be more savvy about the way that they word this and they need to push back because what she did there was play loose with the facts she's essentially tacitly denying that joe biden was elected legitimately but yet in that same interview she wants to be portrayed as being this reasonable moderate it's just ridiculous right so that's why people like lauren bobert are saying she's unhinged lauren bobert is correct but lauren bobert is also unhinged. This entire party is unhinged. Now, going back to Matt Gates, I referenced him earlier in this video. Nancy Mace, she was on the pro-McCarthy side and Matt Gates was on the other side, obviously. Look at what she said in an interview with Face the Nation. So she was asked, is it going to be difficult to work with these folks, given that you've argued with them before? And Nancy Mace also got into a Twitter fight with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they were on the same side when it came to the McCarthy speaker battle. But Nancy Mace was refreshingly honest, and she admitted that it's going to be really difficult to work with people like Matt Gates, who she views as well, quite frankly, a fraud. The speaker has reportedly given the Freedom Caucus, that ultra conservative faction, uh, a third of the seats on the powerful rules committee, which controls which bills make it to the floor. You've called Matt Gates, one of its members, a political D-lister and a fraud. You've sparred with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'll show our viewers part of that and let them interpret your meaning. Uh, how are you going to work with these folks to, to get anything done for the American people? It's going to be very difficult. Matt Gates is a fraud. Every time he voted against Kevin McCarthy last week, he sent out a fundraising email. Uh, what you saw last week was a constitutional process diminished by those kinds of political actions. That was really interesting, and I respect her for being so forward with her opinion about Matt Gates because most normal people can see that he's obviously a fraud and what he was doing with the McCarthy speaker battle was grandstanding. But, I mean, this whole party... It's a circus and it's all about show. They're not seriously 
trying to legislate and create policies. And she goes on to explain that later on in this interview, if you want to watch it, I'll link to it down below, where she explains that like she herself is a forced birther, but they're not voting on policies that are going to reduce the number of abortions. So she floated the idea of expanding access to birth control so you decrease unwanted pregnancies. And as a result, you decrease the result of uh, uh, the number of abortions. And she says that they're not focused on things like this, so they're not serious about governing. And the Freedom Caucus has essentially taken over the party, and individuals like Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, members of leadership, are forced to kowtow if they want to remain in power because the Freedom Caucus is a large enough number of people in Congress to where they can stop things from getting done, stop Republicans from getting the speakership, as we saw last week. So either way, I'll admit, I think that all of this Republican infighting and factionalization is really good for the country because the more that they focus on each other, the less they could focus on attacking the working class and marginalized people. So I hope that they keep up the fighting and the insults and uh, we'll see. But I don't think that the bad blood is going to go away anytime soon. I think that this speakership battle is going to leave some lasting wounds, but we'll just have to wait and see for sure. But either way, I'm enjoying the show. Meanwhile. You're accused of fabricating almost every single part of your life. Why did you? Why did you deserve to represent the people of New York? Through the way. Did you illegally? Oh, sorry, Mr. Sanchez. There's some campaign, campaign finance, finance concerns and questions about your finances. Really? Can you answer the campaign finance concerns? A little space, space, personal space, please. A little personal space. Why don't you answer our questions, Congressman? You seem to be dodging questions about your finances and about your background. Congressman, what about those new accusations? Congressman, did you misuse campaign finances? Why don't you answer our questions? Congress, please 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 As you just saw, George Santos is still refusing to answer any questions from reporters, and he is planning to address it on his own time. But as the reporter pointed out there, this is a public servant. Keyword, servant. You represent your constituents, and they deserve answers after you literally deceive them about every single aspect of your life to get elected. So it's not a matter of, well, you know, I'll address it when I'm good, well, and ready. No, you work for them, not the other way around. But these politicians, they think that they can do whatever they want, that they are above the law, above accountability. And the reason why they think that is because effectively they are, they can do what they want and they're never held accountable. He didn't resign. He was sworn into Congress. He's now officially a member of Congress. And as you see there, he is uh, just casually throwing up the uh, white power sign. I'm sure it's nothing more than a coincidence. You know, if you're like raising your hand, of course, you're, you're going to do some weird gesture with your fingers. It's totally natural. I'm sure it's a coincidence. I'm being facetious for those who can't detect it. But this is an individual who should not be a member of Congress. He should resign. And even other Republicans should force him to resign because if you care about the overall perception of your party not that they do because they're all crazy but if you do at least a little bit you think that somebody lying to get elected to congress and lying about every single aspect of their lives might make all of you look bad but no they're kind of getting buddy buddy with george santos as marjorie taylor green is but i don't necessarily care too much about what the rank and file republicans are doing the real question is what is leadership doing to hold this individual accountable, this compulsive liar. Well, Steve Scalise was asked about this and 
he basically brushed aside the reporter's concerns here. Let's watch. Given all that we know now about what Congressman Santos lied about his resume, the various inquiries into him at the federal and local level, do you think that he should be a member of Congress? Well, you saw him seated last week. There were no challenges to that. This is something that's being handled internally. Obviously, there were concerns about uh, what we had heard. And so we're going to have to sit down and talk to him about it. And that's something that we're going to deal with, uh, just like there's a lot of other things we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with it. Okay. How are you going to deal with it? Because it seems like you're not going to do anything. This man lied about every single aspect of his life, his race, his heritage, his career, his education, his own mother's death, perhaps his sexual orientation. He lied about everything. He created a fictional character and ran for Congress on that fictional character, and you're just fine with this? You're not worried about how this makes the Republican Party look, if he's a PR nightmare for the Republican Party? No. And I'll tell you how he's going to handle it. By not just doing nothing, which is what I expected, but by rewarding George Santos by making sure that the Ethics Committee can't do what they need to do to investigate him. Insider reports, the House of Representatives Monday passed a new set of rules to govern the chamber that will severely weaken the ability of the Office of Congressional Ethics to investigate members of Congress over suspicion of wrongdoing. Quote, I think it's fantastic, Republican Representative George Santos of New York said of the rules package, of course, which they passed by a 220 to 213 margin in a brief interview with the Insider Monday at the Capitol. The changes came just days after Santos, who was reported by multiple news outlets to have lied about much of his background is under investigation in multiple countries and faces at least two Office of Congressional Ethics complaints related to his financial disclosures was sworn into Congress. The proposed rules package severely curtails the ability of OCE to do the job it exists to do, a constellation of good government groups wrote in a letter published January 4th. So that's how the GOP leadership is dealing with this issue. They're gutting the Office of Congressional Ethics so that way it can properly investigate individuals like George Santos. And of course he thinks it's fantastic. I think it's evident to most reasonable people that this is a member of Congress who should not be there. He should be forced to resign, but there's no pressure at all on GOP leadership, so he's gonna be there. And I can't say that I'm surprised. I can't say that I expect accountability at all. But I will say that he'll fit right in with the Republican thugs and clowns who continue to make a mockery of our entire political system, which is already a joke to begin with. Like, our entire government is one big clown show, but Republicans, they really put the cherry on top of the shit Sunday with their ongoing extremism and unhinged behavior. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm surprised that nothing will be done about George Santos lying to his constituents because politicians lie. I mean, he just took lies to the next level, but either way, nothing's gonna be done. I expect him to serve his full term and maybe even get reelected because this is the United States of America and we reward politicians when they should be punished. We reward bad behavior and there's this thing called failing up that has proven to be a real phenomenon time and time again. So, you know, I don't think anything's going to get done. If it does, I'll be shocked. But either way, George Santos is a member of Congress and he's just walking around as if he didn't just deceive everyone, still refusing to talk to reporters. I mean, what an entitled imbecile. But again, I can't say I'm surprised. This is par for the course with the party of extremism and clowns and idiots. He'll fit right in, honestly.
Last year, an analysis conducted by NPR found that Republicans across the country proposed more than 300 anti-trans bills. And with each passing day, it seems as if these laws are getting more and more draconian, more extreme. And I think we're beyond the point to where it's time we sound the alarms and acknowledge what's happening here and what this party is trying to do to this community of Americans. But first, let's get to the latest law proposed from the state of Oklahoma. As ABC News reports, a new bill would make it a felony for anyone under the age of 26 to access gender-confirming care in the state of Oklahoma. Senate Bill 129, sponsored by Republican State Senator David Bullard, is the most recent anti-transgender care bill to be introduced in an ongoing push against gender-confirming care by Republican legislators across the country. Under this bill, physicians and healthcare providers cannot provide gender transition procedures to a patient under the age of 26 or refer them to any healthcare professional for gender transition procedures. A referral would be classified as unprofessional conduct and may result in immediate revocation of the license or certificate of the physician or other healthcare professional. So let's take a moment to pause and really take in what we just read here. They are trying to ban adults in Oklahoma from transitioning. Adults. Now, gender that's a form of expression expression is protected under the first amendment so you have republicans brazenly violating the first amendment along with the 14th amendment to target this group of adults and say you're not allowed to live your life and express yourself in a way that we disagree with now think about what that means for all of the trans adults under the age of 26 in oklahoma this would literally force them to detransition so what this bill is trying to do is make it so that way doctors in Oklahoma would be so afraid that they wouldn't treat trans adults with gender affirming care. We're talking about an entire community being legally erased in a state in the United States in the year 2023. This is horrifying. And seeing this news sent chills down the back of my neck because this is where we're reaching genocidal territory where they're not just saying genocidal things and using genocidal rhetoric. They're trying to enact a genocide against this community by legally getting them to disappear. Now, this isn't the first anti-trans law proposed by the state of Oklahoma. In fact, they already have a plethora of anti-trans laws that have been passed that are deeply discriminatory. ABC News continues, Oklahoma currently has laws in place that ban trans athletes in state schools from participating in sports that correspond with their gender identity, a ban on trans people using the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity, and bans on non-binary gender markers on state birth certificates. So this state has already made it clear that they don't just not care about their trans residents, but they actively are trying to do them harm. And they're not alone, unfortunately, because other states like Florida, Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, they all make it more difficult to legally change your gender. But now we're seeing what was once just a couple of obstacles being taken to the extreme. And now they want to forcibly detransition trans people and ban adults from being who they really are. 
it's it's sickening and and i want to be very clear here that this is not the start of some new trend as aaron reed pointed out on twitter back on december 7th new hampshire has filed a law which will detransition all trans youth and young adults if it passes this is the third bill this week that targets trans adults along with trans youth they will continue to raise the age until states ban transition entirely she adds, we are going to see a state shoot for 25-year-old trans bans this year, eventually trans bans for everyone. We have been saying a slow-moving genocide targeted at eliminating transgender people through eliminating gender-affirming care is happening. It continues. And look at how quickly she was proven right. Now Oklahoma is trying to ban gender-affirming care and transitions for anyone under the age of 26. This is absolutely horrifying. And if you care about trans people, now is the time to speak up. It's already bad enough for trans children to where if you are the parent of a trans child in states like Texas, you now have to flee the state in order to avoid losing your child to Child Protective Services since they're investigating parents or they were investigating parents of trans kids before a court had put blocks on that. But it's getting horrifying that's that's kind of the takeaway like i just want you to understand it's getting horrifying to where trans people have to flee states if not the country in the near future because of where this is going so if you actually care it's not even about like if you care about trans people specifically if you're a decent human being and you think that we actually should be free in the United States of America, have the freedom to live our lives as we see fit, now is the time to speak up, just to see the ways in which this party is making this entire community public enemy number one. If you don't speak up now, you are complicit. Now is the time to be as loud as you possibly can, because this cannot stand. This is getting frightening, and we keep seeing these bills increasingly draconian be proposed, but how soon until one of these bills get passed? I don't think that this can stand because it's brazenly unconstitutional. But when you have so many Republican judges appointed by Donald Trump, I mean, who knows? This could pass. It could get upheld, perhaps struck down by a federal court. But if it makes its way to the Supreme Court, that's where I think that we are don't have much of a shot so we have to stop it from getting to that point and if you see a bill like this pop up in your state you have to take action call your legislators call your state representatives because this cannot stand this is horrifying and i want people to understand what's at stake here and how this is the republican party taking transphobia to its logical conclusion which is effectively a genocide against them This is a really pivotal moment for the labor movement in the United States. We haven't seen this much labor activity in this country for decades. And certainly there's been some setbacks, but there's been enough momentum to finally let workers know that they can take back their power and they can be victorious. The problem is that they could see a catastrophic blow if the Supreme Court decides to side with corporations as opposed to workers. Now, the case in question that I wanna talk about is Glacier v. Teamsters. This is a case 
that is of enormous consequence. So let's get to the details. For that, we're going to go to Ellie Mastal, who is a justice correspondent for The Nation, who concisely broke down this case on Twitter. And he writes here, cement drivers went out on strike. Some of the cements in their trucks hardened, as cement is known to do. After the strike, the company sued the workers for destruction of property. The issue is whether they can. If the company wins, it will vitiate the ability of workers to strike in this country, which has been happening quite a bit, don't you know? There was an actual ruling from the National Labor Relations Board that said the workers did take reasonable precautions to avoid the destruction of property. Now, the reason why the National Labor Relations Board made that ruling is because the workers, before they went on strike, they left the trucks running. So that way, the concrete wouldn't harden. But the reason why Ellie decided to emphasize the word labor is because they are the ones that handle labor disputes, not the Supreme Court. The fact that they're even getting involved here is a red flag in and of itself. So there's a couple of questions that we're going to get answered with this case. First and foremost, it's kind of a rhetorical question, and it's whether or not the Supreme Court even cares about the authority of the NLRB. And we kind of have an answer because they're taking up the case rather than just letting the NLRB decide. Second of all, what are the broader implications that this case can have on workers? Once you open the door to companies being able to sue workers for striking, that's a whole can of worms that could lead to really dark places. Now, Sharon Block, a professor at Harvard Law, explained some of the potential implications of this if the court sides with the concrete company in a video for More Perfect Union, and what she says is genuinely chilling. Imagine you're a newly unionized Starbucks barista discussing whether to strike. You've got lots to think about, but what you probably wouldn't expect to have to consider is whether your union-busting boss, Howard Schultz, is going to sue you for the impact of your strike on Starbucks, for the coffee that gets wasted or milk that goes sour or lost revenue from customers who get tired of waiting in line. But if a Seattle concrete mixing company and the US Chamber of Commerce get their way before the Supreme Court this year, that's the crazy position that American unions are going to be in if they want to strike. Yeah, so the Supreme Court is choosing to take up this case, which is a matter squarely in the jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Board. And in the event they greenlight companies suing workers, this could lead to a horrifying, even darker dystopia than we're living, if you can believe it. So the question is, based on oral arguments, Who's the Supreme Court going to side with? Well, we can't know for sure until we see the actual case itself and the decision. But based on oral arguments, I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that the Supreme Court seems poised to side with the concrete company here. NBC News reports the Supreme Court on Tuesday indicated it would rule in favor of a concrete company in Washington state seeking to revive a lawsuit it filed against the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, alleging that a strike damaged its product. Based on questions of the justices during the oral argument, it appears the court will say that the Washington Supreme Court was wrong to dismiss the lawsuit. It could, however, be a narrow ruling adopting the middle ground position 
taken by the Biden administration. That could mean that even though the lawsuit is revived, it could be put on hold until the National Labor Relations Board, which handles labor conflicts, finishes its own investigation into whether the strike action and the alleged damage was an activity protected by federal labor law. Now, that last paragraph seems really unlikely. I doubt that the court will say, actually, let's give this to the NLRB and let them decide because they already issued a ruling here. The case was closed. So to reopen it, they're just going to have to do their own investigation when they already had made a decision. That just seems really unlikely, right? And the reason why this was dismissed by the Washington State Supreme Court is because the NLRB is there for these types of things. Do you understand? So the only time when state law is able to sanction strikes is in the event those striking workers lose federal protections because they're doing violence. But there's no allegation of violence here. And that's the thing. So that's why this all reeks of the Supreme Court just doing the bidding of corporations to the detriment of unions once again. Now, it's so bad that according to Mistal, even the liberal justices are seemingly surrendering here. He points out, this is all going even worse than I figured, and I figured it would go pretty badly. Essentially, Kentanji Brown-Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor have abandoned the best arguments for unions and are now focused on limiting the scope of the eventual corporate victory. So, this is really bad, but it's not necessarily surprising, considering this isn't the first time that the Roberts Court has stuck it to unions. Remember back in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 to four decision that employees and public sector unions could not be compelled to pay their union dues. So the likely outcome isn't that surprising in retrospect, but the silver lining is that the Supreme Court thankfully does seem to be making a distinction between economic loss and loss of property, which means that the worst case scenario outcome that Professor Sharon Block speculated about from that more perfect union video that we saw uh, doesn't seem likely. But still, this is problematic, and I'll explain why after we get to this next portion of the article here. NBC News continues, During the argument, justices wrestled with the distinction between economic loss caused by a strike action, which is generally considered not to be the responsibility of workers, and intentional destruction of property, which would not be protected. Chief Justice John Roberts used milk production as an example of harm caused by a strike, noting the difference between the milk spoiling and killing the cow. Darren Dalmet, a lawyer representing the union conceded that there are limits to what conduct should be protected. We absolutely agree that you can't burn down the factory, he said. Now, I should be clear that just because the Supreme Court is making a distinction between economic loss and damage to property doesn't necessarily mean that they'll explicitly lay that out, right? Because they could release a decision where they side with a concrete company and they leave that vague, opening the door to future lawsuits where companies do sue workers in the event they strike because that's a loss in profits or revenue. So we don't necessarily know, but the fact that they're making that distinction is really important. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't seem like this is going to go well for workers. Now, hypothetically speaking, let's say that these workers did just leave the trucks, didn't leave them running, they turned them off. And they knew that that would cause damage to property. It would destroy the trucks, basically. I mean, it's not the responsibility of workers or unions to try to minimize 
the economic loss or the nature, the destructive nature potentially of these strikes. The strikes are supposed to be a disturbance. They're supposed to inflict pain on these companies so as to create an economic incentive for these companies to cave to the demands of their workers, to not let it get to the point where the workers have to strike because these companies aren't taking into account what their workers want. So even if the workers were at fault here, I mean, it's not like they were intentionally trying to cause destruction to property, but the mere fact that this is even being considered and the Supreme Court took up this case, it's just is absurd and it's a really bad sign in and of itself. So. Again, I want to emphasize, as I always do when we talk about the oral arguments in these Supreme Court cases, that we won't know until a decision is released. But based on what we're seeing here, it's really not good. Now, uh, down below, I'll link you to the oral arguments if you want to hear them yourself. But ultimately, you kind of have the crux of this and what to expect. Not that we needed to hear from the justices to kind of deduce that they would rule in the favor of corporations and against unions. But either way... This is really worrying, and if it really does go south, as it seems like it will, this is going to be a massive setback to workers and unions in particular. So we'll just have to wait and see, but it doesn't look good, but this isn't surprising. I think what we saw when we saw the Democrats during that House chaotic moment when they were trying to pick speakers was this unity. Yeah. And I think that unity came from the fact that Hakeem Jeffries waited his turn and waited for Nancy Pelosi to sort of bless him and say, yes, I'm going to step down. You, you may step up. And I think she kind of earned that right. And so Dianne Feinstein, has, I mean, she has been... Uh, a lion of, of the Senate. And for her, even at 90, I, I, I don't know, she's put in her papers for 2024, basically saying, I'm going to run again. And so there's some tension there. And I'm surprised Katie Porter wouldn't get her blessing first. It's hard to see clearly for me because I think Katie Porter is such a force. Amazing. And normally I wouldn't concern myself. I'm not a, like a political person with California, but I learned of Katie Porter in one of the many whiteboard presentations and was like, that woman is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, again, I tend to give her more credit that there could be more to this. She could have talked privately. There mm -hmm. could have been some advisors or people that know, in theory, that sounds lovely, Sunny, but getting her blood in the Senate to me was like, it's a, a bit Machiavellian, but I'm like, just go, girl, go. I mean, Adam no, Schiff not. is also someone that people are talking about sort of taking that place. I'd love to see an Adam Schiff, but only if Diane is truly but ready Adam to Schiff step is, down. But isn't Adam Schiff getting a lot of flack from the right right now about different, they're calling him all different. I feel not like he's, he's not that he deserves it, but he's though. kind of uh, radioactive a little bit. I she's feel like not. it makes it even better. I think in that California. He's radioactive. But she she is also, in a way, somebody who speaks her mind, who says what she yeah. means. She shows you her work. Yeah. Like a good math equation. You may not agree with her, but you will know how she got there. And I think that's, that's so well, important in transparency. I think Katie Porter's unequivocally super sharp and like a rising star for Democrats. But three things that bothered me about the timing is um, Diane Feinstein has not officially announced her retirement. And yeah. you always stand on the shoulders of the people before you. She served in the Senate for, I believe, 31 years. Yeah. She was the first female mayor of San, uh, San Francisco. She needs to know who paved the way for her. Um, California's also facing deadly floods. 17 lives have been lost. And yeah, I that noticed hit me a little. Diane Feinstein put out a statement saying, you know, she hasn't made a decision yet, whether she's running or retiring, but her focus is on the floods. I actually interpreted a little bit of shade in there. Like, I did too. I'm doing work for, for my home. Um, and then just finally, this is, 
I could say this about a lot of people, but she was just sworn into office in the House. I don't love when people run for one office only to run for the next thing. You just watched the ladies on The View basically scold Katie Porter for daring to challenge 89-year-old Dianne Feinstein, who's reportedly struggling to recognize her own colleagues and notably yelled at children who confronted her about her inaction on climate change. Senator, if it's this doesn't get ourselves. turned around in 10 years, you're looking at the faces of the people who are going to be living with these yes, consequences. The government and is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all You know for what's the interesting about this group? is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I've gotten elected. I just ran. I was elected by almost a million vote plurality. And I know what I'm doing. So, you know, maybe people should listen a little bit. I hear what you're saying, but we're the people who voted you. You're supposed to listen to us. That's your job. How old are you? How old I'm are 16. You? I well, can't you didn't vote. vote for me. Well, she, I'm she voted. Voted. It doesn't matter. We're the ones well, who's going to be impacted. It doesn't matter. We're going to be the ones who's all impacted. That's who the hosts on The View are defending. A rich lady who looked children in the eyes and basically said, F*** you, kids. Burn on this planet. I don't give a shit. It's just ridiculous. And some things that they said, I've got to address here because it's inaccurate. So Sonny Hostin said that Hakeem Jeffries waited his turn. He waited for Nancy Pelosi to bless him. But no, that's not actually true. He leapfrogged Barbara Lee, who was next in line to become the caucus chair. So he didn't just wait his turn. It's just that he didn't have the votes needed to become speaker as long as Nancy Pelosi was going to be the speaker because Democrats are overly deferential towards leadership. So to say that he waited his turn is wrong, but it also doesn't matter because power should be challenged. You don't have to be overly deferential towards leadership just because they're in positions of power. I find this position very bizarre. And Sonny Hostin said that she really was hoping to see Adam Schiff run, but only if Dianne Feinstein was going to step down. So... It's perfectly reasonable for Diane Feinstein to run until she's 126 years old, and anyone who challenges her has to have her blessing in order to do that. I mean, do we live in a democracy or a monarchy where we wait for kings and queens to die so as to see who's going to replace them? Like, this is ridiculous logic here. And Sarah Hostin, no, Sarah Haynes, uh, she said that this was a Machiavellian move. And Alyssa Griffin, I believe the Republican on the panel, said that Katie Porter needs to know who paved the way for her. This is all ridiculous here. They're making it seem as if Dianne Feinstein is a saint. And even if she were a saint, that still wouldn't matter. This is a democracy, and Katie Porter is well within her right to challenge somebody who is the incumbent. And let's be realistic about who Dianne Feinstein is. Dianne Feinstein is a multimillionaire who amassed millions upon millions of dollars during her tenure as a United States Senator, thanks to lucrative investments and in companies that she's supposed to be regulating. So don't lie to your viewers and pretend as if she served them. No, she served herself in the US Senate. Now, according to Alex Salmon of Slate, 
Even though she is old and very clearly in cognitive decline, she still is reportedly going to cling to power. He reports Diane Feinstein has not given any indication she is stepping down. She has, in fact, filed the paperwork to run again. But there's blood in the water and California Dems are going for it. Barbara Lee just told the Black Caucus she's running. Katie Porter is in. Now, more on that later. But getting back to The View, prior to what you watched, Whoopi Goldberg opened this segment by framing this conversation in a way that suggests that people are angry that Katie Porter is challenging Dianne Feinstein before she officially announces that she's not seeking re-election. And the word that she used in particular was some people are saying it's disrespectful. And I can't know for sure, but I believe this is the popular tweet that she's referencing where Keith Edwards responded to Porter's announcement saying it's pretty disrespectful to announce ahead of Feinstein's decision. Now, he also attacked Porter for endorsing Nina Turner's run for Congress because, I mean, how dare a progressive endorse a fellow progressive with similar policy priorities? How scandalous. These people are so ridiculous. And let me just say this. Power is supposed to be challenged. Even politicians that I support, I believe that they should have to prove themselves every single time there's an election. Bernie Sanders, he should face a primary challenger. I wouldn't support that primary challenger, but I believe in democracy. And simply saying that you have to wait your turn and you shouldn't challenge power, otherwise you're being disrespectful, is completely absurd. Now, to my surprise, Whoopi Goldberg actually had the most reasonable response on the entire panel. And I'll tell you why she shocked me after we watched this clip. What if, this is just a take on this, what if Feinstein doesn't want to walk away and you're in a party where you're saying, okay, I get what you've done for the place, I get it, but like... Everyone's different at different ages, so I'm not saying 90 means the same thing for 10 different people. But you're 90, and there's a lot of people coming in. One, just for your own sanity, life is short. Sit back yeah, but and that's you know, relax. Choice. That it should is be, her that's choice. Her choice. But if I do think decides, there's a bigger party than just her. But if she decides that she doesn't want to run, that's one thing. But she should, <laughs> and and the state of California should also know there are there are other choices yeah. in the mix, mm -hmm. and that is politics. <laughs> that is politics. Now, I, the 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 flooding. Sure. You all right? Well, I'm being, to I'm being told that we have a picture that I did want to call up of, of uh, during the McCarthy vote that uh, <laughs> Katie Porter is sort oh. of reading that book that says how not to give an F about yeah. things yeah. and sharing it with and, friends. And, and sharing it with many of us. While McCarthy was talking, While, right? while she was talking. And so yeah. she does have this fervor. Well, she's, um, listen, she's a great politician. She's you know, someone you absolutely want in. Yeah. My point is that there are many people who are saying, okay, if you're going to stay, we don't know if you're going to stay, but if you are going to stay, you should know we also would like to come into this. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think that's a bad that's a thing. Point. I did not expect this from Whoopi Goldberg, but she's absolutely correct. That's politics. There's no rule saying that you have to be overly deferential towards the incumbent and you can never question their legitimacy ever. No, you can run against them because we live in a democracy. Whoopi Goldberg pointed that out and nobody else got that. They thought that it was only appropriate for somebody to challenge Feinstein if they uh, one swore fealty to her and two, she gave them the go ahead. But it doesn't work that way. And the reason why I'm so shocked that Whoopi of all of the panelists had that tag is because she herself has previously scolded progressives. So after AOC was first elected and on her very first day, she protested with climate activists in Nancy Pelosi's office. This is the way that Whoopi Goldberg uh, reacted. This is a clip from January 9th of 2019. 
she just got in on Thursday. She was sworn in. Yes. Yeah. And she's very opinionated, which we like. We like opinionated yeah. women. But it is very, very difficult when people make accusations where you, that you say, you know, the Democrats have, have done nothing. The, they, the establishment of the Democrats mm. have done nothing. You just got in there, and I know you got lots of good ideas, but I would encourage you to sit still for a minute and learn the job. <laughs> and, you know, and just, you know, because there are people in that party who have been working their tails off. Whoopi, look at how far we've come. Look at how far we've come. You are now saying it's actually okay to challenge these incumbent Democrats. Whereas before, that thought to you was heresy. It was blasphemous. So I'm really proud of Whoopi Goldberg. By the way, I miss the days when progressive lawmakers were actually challenging leadership, or at least I thought that they would be consistently challenging leadership because those days are absolutely long gone. Either way, though, whenever there is an instance when a progressive Democrat wants to challenge a corporate Democrat, I'm going to welcome that. But let's talk about this challenge. Moving on from the view stuff, um, this is going to be complicated because there's a lot of individuals jockeying for Dianne Feinstein's seat, assuming she's not going to seek re-election. Slate reports that other hungry California congressmen and women, including Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, and Ro Khanna, will also jump into this race is already a near certainty. There will be more, too. Already, there is grumbling about Porter's move, both because she didn't wait until Feinstein's formal announcement and because she beat others to the punch. Right away, sources in Schiff's orbit lit up the political press with anonymous sniping, saying to multiple outlets, you don't announce a campaign in the middle of a natural disaster referring to the ongoing flooding in California. Schiff then blasted out a fundraising email for flood victims, an altruistic gesture that would just so happen to bring in more names, emails, and phone numbers for his email list, exactly, which incidentally would be quite useful for later donations efforts by a political campaign. So what we're seeing is, I think, two things. On one hand, you do see individuals like Sonny Hostin and other hosts on The View who are liberal and they believe in the democratic party establishment and they don't view the party the way that young people like myself view the party as out of touch wealthy elites who don't actually care about anything other than their own power that's part of it but another part of it is that they're a little bit angry that their preferred candidate was beat to the punch and adam schiff is one of those individuals and sonny hostin even admitted that she was kind of hoping that he would run and his team is reportedly angry that katie porter beat them to the punch so this isn't just about diane feinstein this is i want my preferred candidate to get in and in the case of the view it seems like they're supportive of katie porter just because she's an effective communicator but ultimately at least if we're listening to sonny hostin she wants adam schiff the corporate Democrat. Now, let me address all of the progressives running. On one hand, I am absolutely pleasantly surprised to see so many progressives trying to run for Dianne Feinstein's seat. The problem is that this becomes an issue of math. And when you have so many progressives against corporate Democrats, progressives, they can split that vote, which would pave the way for a corporate Democrat. Now, I think this is probably going to be a pretty open field. It's going to be a very robust primary. Um, if Dianne Feinstein ends up running again, she probably is going to win because for whatever reason, voters are very deferential to the incumbents. But in the event, this is a four-way a four race primarily between Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, and Ro Khanna. 
Well, you have all of the corporate, more centrist, establishment-friendly Democrats all consolidating their votes behind Adam Schiff. And then you have the progressives behind Katie Porter, Ro Khanna, and Barbara Lee splitting their votes, which would pave the way for Adam Schiff. So I think that we absolutely need a progressive in this seat. That isn't even a question to me. But what I want these progressives who are running to do, and I support Katie Porter, but including her is I want them to look at the polls. And if they don't believe they have a real shot, they need to drop out and endorse the progressive who has the best chance because in the event progressives are once again fragmented and not united, then the progressive is going to lose and the corporate Democrat is going to win. This is what happened in 2020. Bernie Sanders was getting a plurality, but because Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg all dropped out and endorsed Biden and the centrists kind of coalesced behind one candidate, Biden ended up getting the plurality and Bernie Sanders lost. Remember that Elizabeth Warren did not drop out and endorse him when she had no chance and ended up losing in her own home state. So I want progressives going forward to be a little bit more savvy in their politics. And yes, I do believe in democracy, but I want them as entitled as they are to run to think about the ways in which they can help the progressive win overall and not put their careers ahead of the policy substance but we'll just have to wait and see what happens i personally am rooting for katie porter because i think that she is not just a good option for californians but this is somebody who let's be clear can be a really good presidential contender for democrats she is a rising star and i think that if she were to run for president she'd have a good chance of winning you know she'd be one of the more progressive options that actually has a solid chance. So I'm rooting for Katie Porter, but either way, if it turns out that Ro Khanna has more support, I would hope that Katie Porter would back Ro Khanna and drop out so that way, you know, they're not splitting the votes and we don't get an Adam Schiff or another out of touch corporate Democrat, but I'll leave that there. Dianne Feinstein may run again, but regardless of what she chooses to do, that should not cause other democrats to acquiesce and just say oh well this 89 year old who's very clearly in cognitive decline isn't giving up power so i'm gonna wait my turn no you don't have to wait your turn these aren't part of the rules you can do what you want this is a democracy and i wish that other people namely individuals in media like the hosts on the view would stop being so deferential towards these establishment politicians if there's hope then i mean look at whoopi goldberg she was originally very protective of the establishment and now at least in this instance she's kind of siding with katie porter here and saying that's politics so maybe they'll change their minds over the years either way it doesn't matter because this is going to be a decision that the voters ultimately are going to make and i really hope that they opt for the progressive Today, we're going to be talking about someone who you probably haven't thought about for quite some time, and that individual is Gina Carano. Now, you may remember her from The Mandalorian. She was on seasons one and two, I believe. But after she made some sussy posts on social media, she was subsequently fired. If you don't remember, allow me to refresh your memory. So The Hollywood Reporter published this article on February 10th of 2021 explaining the situation. They write, Gina Carano will not be returning to The Mandalorian or the Star Wars galaxy after sharing a post on social media implying that being Republican today is like being Jewish during the Holocaust. Yikes. Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Lucasfilm 
Lucasfilm spokesperson said in a statement. Nevertheless, her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable. Carano has also been dropped as a client by UTA, an agency spokesperson confirms. So sometimes you f around, sometimes you find out that's just part of life. Gina Carano certainly found out after f***ing around, but Ben Shapiro decided to swoop in and save the day because just days later, TMZ reported that she signed a movie deal with Ben Shapiro's outlet, The Daily Wire. Now, fast forward a year later to February of 2022, and The Daily Wire officially released its first trailer for their movie starring Gina Carano called Terror on the Prairie. And they announced that it would be releasing in the summer and it ended up coming out on June 14th. And I can't play the trailer for you, but I'll link to that down below. There's some copyrighted music in it that I think wouldn't allow me to play it. But either way, you can watch the trailer. I've seen it. It looks like dog shit. But either way, they essentially took a victory lap gloating about how they uncanceled Gina Carano. In an article for the Daily Wire titled How the Daily Wire Uncanceled Gina Carano, Star of Terror on the Prairie, writer Ben Zeisloff proclaims that last year the Daily Wire promised to uncancel Gina Carano. Today, that promise is fulfilled. And that's really all that you can read from the article because the rest is behind a paywall and best believe I'm not going to be paying to read the rest. So it was a happy ending for Gina Carano after all. She was fired from Disney, but now she's starring in a film for The Daily Wire. And um, now we have the numbers and we know how good that film did. And let me just tell you, that film did real bad. It, <laughs> it did really, really bad. Here's the numbers here. The film Terror on the Prairie by The Daily Wire, according to box office website, the numbers... Well, it reports here that the film made $804. You heard that right, $800, $800. Look, I'm not the most arrogant person ever, but if I were to put out some movie, I think that Humanist Report followers would more enthusiastically support that film, even if it were objectively dog shit. But either way, $800. This is a former Hollywood actress who went from Star Wars to the Daily Wire where she's making $800. And as I record this video now, I'm realizing that on the poster behind me, one of the stars, I don't know if you can see that, their name is Cowboy Cerrone. That's literally your name. Okay. I just, I'm just realizing that now. Now, listen, this is a very sensitive subject for Gina Carano because somebody pointed out, a pop culture critic who also works for The Hollywood Reporter, pointed out that it was pretty funny that this film did so poorly and she did not take kindly to that so in response to news that her movie only made eight hundred dollars richard newby writes i'll never stop laughing at the fact that she could have had her own star wars series toys books comics apparel she was that close she didn't just fumble the bag she dumped it out put it over her head and cut off her air supply now, he didn't at her on Twitter, but somehow she still saw that, and of course she responded saying, Here is a contributor of THR, not the Humanist Report by the way, the Hollywood Reporter, who repeatedly joins in an online mob of mostly anonymous accounts 
harassing me. She's accusing him of harassment. Are you aware that we released Terror on the Prairie exclusively on The Real Daily Wire and you didn't know that? Or are ignorance and spreading hate your only... Or is spreading ignorance and hate your only purpose here? I think that's what she's saying. She continues, I didn't fumble the bag. I just didn't go along with the sellout narrative. The online mob couldn't handle that. So they petitioned to have me fired and won. I'm not sorry for that. I stood for what I believe the right thing to do was. And the more time that goes by, the better I feel, sure. The genuine bag fumble is sellout journalists like you who sold out America and stopped asking questions to be liked by a fickle, manipulated mob. That is what you valued, and that will be your legacy. Now, we're going to get to Newbie's response here, but I just have to cut in and say that it's not a sellout narrative to think that Republicans today aren't treated as poorly as Jewish people were during the Holocaust, because that's just wrong and imbecilic. So I don't know how she... I guess she's trying to pretend as if she was sub subversive and being counterculture by making an idiotic statement. But no, you just made a statement that was deeply idiotic and you got canceled for it. Move on. But she's not going to move on. Now, Newbie responded saying, it can't be harassment when I'm not tweeting at you, Gina. Name search at your own discretion. I don't care about whatever nonsense Ben Shapiro is pushing out. But please, I'd love to hear more from you about hatred and ignorance. Sounds like you've got a great grip on it. Now, he shared something that she retweeted from Blair White, a transgender conservative akin to Dave Rubin, who uses her identity to legitimize right-wing lies about their own community. Now, this particular tweet that she shared is spreading the lie that queer people want to groom children. Now, she wrote back to him saying, retweeting a trans person, Miss Blair White, saying, I have no problem with drag shows or sex changes and just want to make sure children are being protected is hateful. He responded saying, we're not going to play these stupid games, Gina, and pretend this whole protect the children business when the LGBTQ community has never put anyone at risk is anything more than a right-wing tactic to deny people their rights. Finally, she responded by saying, no one is pretending parents across America are concerned for their children. I don't even have children and I'm concerned for them. The stupid games being played are by journalists like you who do not take their concerns seriously and at least have genuine dialogue with them. And at that point, I believe that their communication ended after he blocked her. Now, as you can see, she is deeply insecure about her current career place. And I would be too if I were her. She went from probably a multi-million dollar contract with Disney to doing movies that make $800 at the Daily Wire. I don't care who you are, that's got a sting. So you can tell she's very, very sensitive about this. And she's so sensitive that she's searching for criticism, actively so. And when she finds said criticism, she's saying that they're harassing her for criticizing her. I don't think it works that way, but either way, don't talk about this movie, otherwise she's going to come after you. Hell, she might see this uh, see this video. I hope she doesn't, because I'm afraid that she's going to beat me up. Either way, she doesn't want you to talk about this. And honestly, I can't blame her. I feel your pain, Gina Carano. Just maybe, like, don't say stupid things next time. But the video doesn't end here, because I saved the best part for last. So... Her co-star decided to chime in here and come to her defense. And no, I'm not talking about Cowboy Cerrone. I'm talking about the other one. So Mediaite reports, Terror on the Prairie co-star Nick Searcy told Mediaite he's already blocked by newbie and minced no words when defending Carano. Quote, all of these Hollywood parasites can kiss my whole ass 
and bark at the hole. <laughs> and you can quote me, the filmmaker said, I would rather stand with Gina Carano than any of those group think worms. First of all, I'm laughing because as I was reading that, I almost called her Gina Carano. And then, and then on top of that, his comment threw me off. All these Hollywood parasites can kiss my whole ass and bark at the, and bark at the hole. Am I missing something here? I've never heard somebody say that. They can kiss my whole ass and bark at the hole. Are you literally saying that they can bark at your butthole? <laughs> I mean, comment down below. Am I am I just out of the loop here? Is this something that people say? You can bark at my butthole after you kiss it. I just, wow, that one, that one got to me there. I'm crying almost. So there you have it. Gina Carano's movie flopped and she's really sensitive about that. So don't talk about it. Even if you're not adding her, don't you dare bring it up because she will search out your criticism, accuse you of harassment, and then debate you about whether or not LGBTQ plus people are grooming children. This is a very silly world that we live in, and I'm just so happy that it's as entertaining as it is at a minimum. Because sure, things could be better. We could live in a functioning democracy with healthcare and equal rights. But I mean, at least we get this entertainment, right? At a minimum, we're entertained. Are you not entertained? I'm pretty entertained by this. So yeah, um, look, I watched Terror on the Prairie, and it was... It was so good. I I'm sad that it failed. I can't even say it with a straight face. Of course, I didn't watch it. Um, but if you did watch it, let me know. Uh, was it good? The trailer made it look very boring and, and bad. But either way, um, I do feel bad for Gina Carano. I've got to admit that. Even if this was kind of her own fault and her hot takes are really too hot. I mean, all of this could have been avoided if she just didn't say deeply stupid and offensive things. So either way live and learn or don't learn either way love this story want more visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on youtube means tv and facebook you can also find audio versions of the show on spotify apple podcasts soundcloud iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.